Welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. I'm your host, Jared Lumen. On this show, we talk to farmers and ranchers who aren't afraid to think for themselves and do things a little bit differently. We hope these guests will challenge you to look at your farms and ranches in a new way and result in a more profitable and enjoyable business for you and your family. Welcome back to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Today's guest is Bart Morris from Missoula, Montana. He's been recommended to me now by a couple of listeners, and I'm really looking forward to hearing his story. It's uh, something that I've found when more than one people tell you you got to talk to someone, uh, you better talk to them. They usually have a good story worth sharing. So, Bart, thanks so much for joining me today, and, and welcome to the Herd Quitter Podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I was looking at your website a little bit, uh, just to kind of get an idea of what you're doing. And one of the things that I noticed being a Minnesotan here and, uh, east of the, well, you know, way east of you anyway, is, uh, uh, the landscape of your ranch there is beautiful. Looks like something straight out of, uh, Yellowstone or something. So maybe tell, tell us a little bit about your landscape, your ranch, where you're at and kind of the, um, I don't know, the, the uniqueness of, of your, your, uh, your place. Ah, well, Yellowstone's actually just filmed right up the river from us, not too far. So, (laughs) um, some similarities there, but, um, yeah, we're, we actually touched the Missoula city limits, um, on our North end. We have subdivisions that run along us. I think I have more neighbors than any any other rancher in Montana. I might (laughs) be wrong, but, um, then we run from there South, uh, up the Bitterroot into the Bitterroot Valley. And so we have, we have the Bitterroot, which is running through the middle of our place and the places we lease. And we run on about eight miles a bit and mm-hmm. it floods every year. So it's good sub irrigated ground. Um, a lot of aspen groves and cottonwood groves and some ponderosa pine in there. And um, so it stays shaded and has its own little climate down in there. And so we usually have green grass in that till August, which is a, a blessing. And what we do is we graze on those old ancient oxbows, thus the name of our company, Oxbow Cattle Company. And then from the Bitterroot, we go up, we go east on the dry side of things, and we go into some pretty um, fragile environment. And and it's we usually graze that stuff every other year we rotate the time of year we hit it and but it's pretty fragile and um so we go from super dry to pretty lush we have a little chunk of irrigated ground and um but yeah our cows live in some beautiful country yeah yeah well just having explored on uh, different real estate websites what the value of river you know waterfront land and some of that area is i can imagine that you you touching eight miles of the bitterroot river it sounds like is probably a pretty high value or beautiful country that a lot of people would envy let alone cows so that's pretty cool um and a question for you that i've heard so many people talk about in that area and i'm going to show my ignorance here but just for a little clarity when you talk about sub-irrigated pastures you, what exactly that mean? You you mentioned flooding. Is it just high water table, or what do you mean by sub-irrigated pastures? Yeah, it's um, it's high water table. Okay. In the Bitterroot, so we'll start. It'll start runoff. Usually, we in the end of April, first of May, we'll start getting pretty good runoff, and 
like the whole river bottom on a average year, we won't be able to use most of it during from May to the beginning of June because it's all underwater. Okay. But that water table starts coming up here in the, in the next couple of weeks. Any type of runoff we'll get um, from the mountains here that surround us, it'll lift that water table up and um, we'll, you'll just see it like all the little low spots, the old ancient oxbows. They won't be running water, but like water will just start percolating up through the up through the substrate and um and eventually that'll all be covered and then it slowly goes down as well and so it, it holds that soil moisture in there the the one thing is if you get a big enough flood it'll it'll drown out that life in the soil and um as well so so sure. it, it can be detrimental in some of those real low spots but for the most part it, it really makes us so yeah interesting how every place has its, especially out West, it seems like has more variability in your landscapes and the different types of land and forages you have to manage, um, create pretty unique experiences. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That you were talking, or go ahead. Sorry. No, go ahead. Um, you were talking about the land values out here and that's one of the things is like, we don't own, um, we only own about 450 acres. And the majority of that acreage is in the floodplain, which is not buildable in Missoula County. So sure. the value of that is is not there. It's not ag prices, don't get me wrong, but yeah. um, it's it's that. But the the really cool thing is all the land we run on is under conservation easement, oh. and so we lease we lease about a thirty five hundred acre place from a from a gentleman that has his in a conservation easement. Then we lease another eleven hundred acre chunk that. Um, that's also in conservation easement. And then we put um portion of our place in conservation easement. So, mm-hmm. and in this part of the world, we're just having a massive infiltration of folks because yeah. of Yellowstone and because of COVID and, yeah. and all that. And so the really, really cool thing about these places is they're not going to go anywhere because um, they've been put in conservation easements. So as long as those guys are willing to lease me the property, um, mm-hmm. we'll be running cows on it and we know that there's, they're not going to sell it for yeah multi-millions of dollars because prices. Yeah. yeah Cause it's not going to be developed. It can't be, sure. which is really, it's, it's saving ag in this little piece of the world. So. Yeah. Well, that's conservation easements. Isn't something I've, I don't know that I've talked about at all. So I'd be curious to hear a little more on that in, in your area. What do people think about it i mean are there probably some city and developers who are pretty upset that that limits you but as far as agriculture like you said it's kind of what's keeping a lot of people or a lot of land anyway in in ag production at all well this yeah this part of the world i mean it's broken up into i mean anywhere's from like i mean little tiny house lots to 10 acre um, subdivisions and the Bitterroot, it's a beautiful part of the world, but if you run up it, it's, um, head South, which is upstream, you, um, you just, it's 10 acre, five acre, three acre parcel. And it's old, um, old, a lot of old irrigated pastures that are now all subdivisions. And, um, the, it's really populated. There's probably, I mean, there's over a hundred thousand people just in the Bitterroot, but, you come to this north end where we're at, which touches the city of Missoula, which is a big city for Montana. I mean, it's like 75,000. And um, 
there's a little chunk there that it's about 5,000 acres that it's as wild as it comes because of these conservation easements on it. We, I mean, we have grizzly bears and black bears and lions and wolves and coyotes and wow. lots of elk and moose yeah. and mule deer and whitetail and um, that. So it, it saves it for, saves it for the wildlife aspect. But um, if we didn't have these and it was subdivided, there probably wouldn't be an Oxbow cattle company kind yeah. of a deal. So sure. it provides local food and it saves a place for us to run cows. Yeah. So from the landowner's perspective, by signing up for a conservation easement, you're giving up a lot of potential value, obviously, like you mentioned, it's given up that development, right? Which is worth a lot of money. Um, are the landowners compensated through this easement then typically? Yeah. Like for ours, um, we put 120 acres in conservation easement and like we did buy sell easement on that. And so we sold those development rights and that was the only way we could purchase that chunk of land was we had to do something like the values of that land were way out of what any cow could ever pay for it, let alone mm -hmm. um, an outside job paying for it as well. But what the conservation easement allowed us to do was, they they compensated us for those development rights at the time. I mean, it, down the road, I mean, we right now, I mean, we did that in 2017 and after 2020, those prices have gone through the roof. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, you can look back and say, well, we didn't, we didn't do as well as we could have, but at the time it was the only way we could get into that property yeah. to make it work. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Um, one thing that I've wondered about, and I recently did some work with some conservation easement organizations in Minnesota here and was pretty impressed or blown away by the opportunity when they start talking about, you know, paying potentially 60 to 70% of the value of the land and you still get to run on it and operate it. But then I've also heard some other sides of the easement conversation where there's you might be given up some rights or for example, one example that I heard, and I don't know if this is common or if this is blown out of proportion is where somebody who had an easement, they found some endangered species on their property and were then not able to graze it maybe anymore or something like that. Is there a worry at all of that? Uh, or are you pretty well protected in your ability to run it as an opera, as a cattle operation in perpetuity or? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm not worried about that at all. It okay. was very, I mean, this was an ag easement, so it had agriculture very much at the forefront. And that's what the land was set aside for. With that said, I mean, you're, you're making a big decision here yeah. in perpetuity and there's consequences, both good and bad down the road. And we've been shooting six years we've already ran into some of those consequences for example we wanted to um we're we're hosting the Kavira apprentice this year and you have to provide housing and so sure. we we wanted to put in um we we're building a new barn and wanted to put in a little living quarters and and bathroom and all that and um where it was located within the conservation easement that was not permitted so sure. um and like rent in this part of the country for folks is thousand dollars a month, $1,200 a month. Yeah. And so that's a, a big cost for us sure. to be able to, um, that we're going to lose out on because mm -hmm. of, we didn't think that through, but 
when it really comes back back or comes down to it, um, we wanted this land to stay yeah. in production for ag and to be the reality of it is we wouldn't be there had we not gone down this road. Yeah. Like we couldn't afford it had we mm-hmm. not. We unless we subdivided it ourselves. We didn't want to do that. We'd rather run cows. Yeah, totally. Well, I appreciate you uh, answering or kind of following me down that sidetrack is something that I don't think I've talked about with anyone yet. So it was interesting that you mentioned how important that is to your particular operation. But um, maybe for a little context, before I go back into your history, which I want to get into, uh, maybe do an overview of what your operation looks like today as far as enterprise mix. Um, and and yeah, and maybe who's all involved in that. You bet. Well, we're a beef business is what we are. So we sell beef directly to the community in Missoula. Um, we don't ship any um, out of state or anything like that. Um, we, we sell our beef in restaurants, grocery stores, and then we have a little honor system store right on our place, which is a, which is an awesome thing. Hmm. And then we also sell like halves, quarters, eights, that kind of a deal. Sure. Um, and we process anywhere a little over 200 head a year that we're that we're processing. We haul every other week, and um, usually haul about eight head every other week. So four a week we're we're processing right now, and um, and so that's our business. And mm-hmm. what that what that looks like on the land is we have we run about a hundred head of mama cows. And then we raise those calves. We hold those calves over. So that gives us, we'll retain heifers out of them to keep our number at about a hundred head. And then we'll um, run the rest as beef cows. So last year we saved 15 replacement heifers. And then um, we'll also, we're finishing our animals. It's all a grass fed, grass finished um, beef business. So um our animals are typically 24 to 36 months of age when mm-hmm. we're finishing them mm-hmm. and to get them to the quality of the beef we like to have. And so that puts us at um, that many yearlings and then that many two-year-olds, and then we process them. And then if you're doing the math on that, we're about a hundred heads short on being yeah. able to provide for folks. And that's where we, we source from, from folks around like, um, Cooper Hibbard that has been on your podcast. They're a big mm-hmm. portion of the animals we get um, sure. through here. And, and we've kind of, we've built this, we're big in regenerative ag and, um, and just doing right by mother earth. And that's a lot of what sells our beef as well as the folks believe in the, what we're doing. And um, so what we've done is we've partnered with these long-term Montana ranches a few of them that meet all the requirements that we have of the regenerative grazing and then no, no growth hormones, no subtherapeutic antibiotics, no grains and um, no porons or anything like that. So, hmm. so that's, that's kind of the cattle operation. So we're, we're running a stalker enterprise, a cow calf um, enterprise, and then we're sourcing some outside cattle. We've also, we got, we, we have lots of weeds here. We're really good at growing weeds. And so um, two of the last four years, we've integrated goats into our system as well, which has been awesome and a challenge all in one. But 
And then we've sold some goats into the um, commodity market as well as processed and sold them in our honor system store as well. So that's kind of, that's kind of what our business looks like from enterprise standpoint. Yeah. Um, well, I, I always struggle with this when I, when I usually start with history, but I don't know how I got into the overview first and I want to dive into your over overview and all the different questions that have been stimulated from what you just said. Um, so I think maybe we'll do that and we'll come back to your history sometime down the road in this conversation if we have time. But uh, some questions, I guess, that come to my head right off the bat when you talked about bringing in beef. Are you sourcing in stockers or finisher cattle or are you finished? Are you buying finished beef products from those kind of cooperators you work with? It's it's evolved over time. Like when we first started, we didn't have a mama cow. We started, mm. and I'll help you with the history on this. In 2014, we started this this deal and we had okay. a partner for the first um, about eight months or so. And, um, and we learned that it wasn't going to work economically at that point. So we bought them out, but we started with 49 head of animals that we sourced from area ranchers and that met our requirements at the time. And um, we finished those. And so from there, and then we started building our mother herd. From there, we started with 14 mama cows, and um, we're we're at it just we're at around 100 head now. And um, what we've done is, as things have evolved and we've grown this beef business, like of that first year in 2014, I think we sold 38 head of those 49 or something. Wow! And then it's just grown and grown since then. Yeah. And what we've done is, I was sourcing. Um, sourcing cows this time of year from folks, you know, usually one or heifers first year and second year heifers that lost their calves or ideally were never pregnant and made mm-hmm. it through and um, nice fat and roly poly, but uh, ones even lost their calves and stuff from those yeah. folks that met our requirements, you know, those we were, we we're targeting that, that, um, group of cows and then what we were doing is we were finishing them on sure. the place here and selling them we had a we we wanted a we really wanted to um hold them here and finish them on our ground because we believe that um what our animals are eating really makes a difference we had gabe brown here last spring about a year ago and he he was he was pretty impressed with the amount of diversity that these cows are given with the, what you were talking about earlier, the, from the river bottoms to the uplands that we run on the diversity is, is that mother nature provides here is great. And so we wanted that flavor. We believe that flavor matters in, in that um, animal based on what they're eating. And so we really wanted to, we wanted to be finishing them on our, our stuff and, and, just kind of as an integrity thing to our, to our customers. But, you know, the more we did this, that, that become economically not sustainable. Um, looking at, you know, buying a, especially in 14 and 15 when cattle prices were yeah. crazy high, buying a 1600 year old or $1,600, $1,700 up to $2,000 cow and finishing her. And that was not making money. And so, what we've looked at is um, we know our raising our owns the best um, gross margin per unit, but um, the only way we can keep up with our demand is and not 
sink the boat economically was to source finished cattle outside. And it was over time we built these relationships and got to know folks. And we know we started to learn what cattle finish well and what genetics are working and who's are and who's not and who has that class animal that fits that. And, and that's where we ended up with sourcing large amounts from Cooper. And I mean, we've gotten animals from Cody. Um, that's part of Pharaoh. Oh, and, um, yep. Cody McDaniel. Nice. And another person is Mark Dabu and Belair. Um, as we source, he's Diamond D. Angus. We've sourced some, some of his animals do really well for us as well. And then some local folks here. So, sure, sure. Well, I like that model. It makes sense to me, uh, too, because oftentimes the, I mean, we do some of the same thing at our farm as well. We grass finish out our open females, our open heifers, and, and, finish them out ourselves. And then we sourced finished beef from producers in our area doing the same thing. Um, financially that probably makes more sense. The margin is largely in the marketing less so in the, than the, than the production as much as we'd love to make that margin in the production side. It doesn't usually work out that way, but, uh, also I like, I mean, there's probably some intentionality to the fact that you're sourcing kind of those open females, as opposed to just buying a bunch of steers in the right industry too, I would imagine, uh, you chose the heifers, the open heifers for a reason. They're probably a little undervalued in relation to their, uh, their finished value than a steer would be maybe. Yeah. And there's no, I mean, of the age to really finish a steer on grass and there isn't genetics to, there isn't a lot of grass finishing genetics for steers in this country. I mean, we've wrestled with that. We've been all over the place on genetics in our herd. And, um, here, I mean, we've been at this for nine years now with, or coming on nine years and eight years of raising our own. And last year was the first year I could really say that our steers were, were finishing at that 24 months, mm -hmm. those heifers, they'll frame up and they'll, they'll finish quicker because they frame up and mature quicker and, um, they'll start putting on fat and get your marbling in that. And so, so if, it makes sense that those steers aren't available in this country and I wouldn't buy them anyways. I did buy some steers and that I would <laughs> instead put one winner in them. I was putting two and that yeah. right there you lose losing big time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. It, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I think, I mean, it's interesting that they're just not available for you there in general, I suppose folks with those low input type cattle or maybe crossbreeding to a terminal sire that won't do well in a, in a grass finishing market, whereas their heifers were maybe developed a little differently, but also an open heifer is already 16 months old. It's past it. You know, maybe it's no longer what the commercial guy wants in the feedlot. And so you can kind of get it under undervalued a little bit of a, a better uh, value for what you're getting for you. But um, that makes a lot of sense. And, and that's pretty cool. I wanted to ask about your your diversity you talked about maybe i don't know if gabe was referring to diversity of landscape and different kind of environments or was he referring to diversity of plant species within each different environment plant species is what he was referring sure. to and and how did that how how would you say that came to be <laughs> well we were just talking and i my recollection of the conversation was was you know we were talking about um nutrient density in our, in our, in the beef we're producing. And he, he was telling me that he had just, um, 
gotten information back on the nutrient density of their beef and the diversity of the species they're running on. And it was, it was, I can't remember if he said it was equal to or greater than like, um, omega threes in um, in wild caught salmon. So, I mean, he was producing beef that, I mean, everybody's chasing or wanting wild caught salmon because omega threes and here Mm -hmm. Gabe Brown's producing beef that's of equal of equal um, nutrient density, if I recall correctly. And um, he told me we should get our beef tested because of the diversity of species that our, our animals are able to source. He wouldn't be surprised if ours were higher than his. So, really? And have you done any testing? Haven't got that far. We're working okay. on all the other stuff. So, yeah, fair enough. So, yeah. Fair enough. Um, well, as far as the diversity of the plant species, I, I assume a lot of that goes to management or when you took this place over, did it naturally have a lot of, a lot of diversity of plant, plant and forage species? Uh, I mean, mother nature did it here for us. Um, we haven't been here long enough to really change that. I mean, with our practice and stuff, we've seen great, we've been seeing really good changes with our grazing management and different things, but, um, changing our I mean, we were given that essentially is what it is from mother nature. So sure. Sure. Okay. Well, you mentioned, I think 2014 is when you started here. Was that your first experience into ranching or had you, or first, was that when you started your marketing enterprise or maybe give me a little more background on your history and how you came to be where you're at today then? Uh, Well, I was, I was born and raised in um, North central Wyoming the Bighorn Basin there. And I grew up working on ranches there um, and went to school at the University of Wyoming, got a degree in wildlife biology and range management, met my beautiful wife, Wendy there. And she, she grew up on a big ranch in Northeastern Colorado. They used to run a thousand pairs and um, had a 2000 head feed lot, feed lot right out the back door. And when we were in college, we'd go help go down there and help um, calve a little bit, and get to go, you know, help feed and all that um, fun stuff, good break from college. And then we were hoping we would get to participate in that um, in some form or fashion, but the way the cards were stacked, it, that one, that wasn't to happen. It, it, Wendy would have been fourth generation and it ended at the third. So, Mm -hmm. so um, we had to go get quote unquote real jobs. Um, (laughs) Wendy, Wendy was doing, um, she was into, or she got a mate or degree in, in, um, blanking on a, a health degree. And, um, she was looking at to be a vet and then decided to actually go in and be a physician. And so, and I, I'd always, I'd always wanted to have impacts on the, the, um, land around us. And, I thought that was one way to do that was to work for a state agency. And so and I went down the road to my very first job outside of college was trapping grizzly bears. And then I, in the Yellowstone ecosystem, and then I was able to, to um, become a regional access coordinator, work with private landowners, getting access and a game warden as well in there, as well as a, um, as a biologist. And while in the meantime, Wendy went to, medical school in Denver and residency and that we had eight year long distance relationship. And then 
at the end of it, I said, I'll go anywhere you want to go just as long as it meets these requirements. And so we moved to Missoula, Montana. We'd only been here twice. We, mm. And along that path, we'd always, you know, we had roots in, um, in agriculture and, and, you know, we were passionate about horsemanship and, and we'd always had our horses and all that. And there's nothing better for a horse than a cow. And so, um, we'd always wanted to get back into it. And I worked for Wyoming Game and Fish for eight years. I, as soon as we came up here, I was putting together some proposals to some of these larger landowners around here to see if they needed a ranch manager or anything. And Wendy, Wendy's an anesthesiologist. She got a job as an anesthesiologist up here. And, and so, um, I was doing that and the fish wildlife parks here, long story short, they, I was able to get a job with them as an access coordinator up here. And so I did that for eight years. And in the meantime, I developed all these relationships working with these landowners up here. And that really allowed me to see that there was an opportunity and we always wanted a branch. I mean, we just did. I mean, that's the way Wendy grew up. That's the way I grew up, but we knew we learned from the ways from the, the way her family ranch had ended as well as my background in range and wildlife biology and wildlife management that um, we wanted to do, we wanted to put the land first and, and um, not just, we knew we couldn't sell just commodity. We had to go a different direction. And so the grass fed, grass finished and um, the regenerative ag thing really spoke to us. And so we started down that road in 2014 with those, like I said, that 49 head. And, um, and you, you picked up the land base at that same time then? Yeah, we just leased everything at that point. I, I'd worked with a couple of these landowners and knew them. And um, I knew they would be open for us leasing the land. It was, this land was just sitting idle. There was, it was all dilapidated. There was no fences on it. Um, it just actually, the one conservation easement, the Rocky Mountain Health Foundation put an easement on it and they went and rolled up all the fences, which um, at the time seemed great yeah. for wildlife, but after I got a hold of it, it was, it was a big job. So, yeah, um, so yeah, we, so we leased, we leased about 4,500 acres right off the bat. We only owned, um, we only owned 120 ourselves. And so, um, so we, it was all a leased operation and, um, it didn't have much for, it didn't have hardly anything for fences. And so we got to be really good, um, polywire cowboys and, and I still to this day, I just, I run cows against subdivisions with just a polywire, um, nothing else. And it works. Mm -hmm. So, um, we've gotten really good at polywire. We've built back the, the big, the big ranch that we lease. We've put water developments on that. We've, we trade in kind service for the lease. And so we, I don't know if it's a good deal for us or not, because we put a lot of money and sweat into that place and it's a really good deal for us actually but um we've developed the water there we've built back that whole ranch mm. I, it's pretty much have or it does have a fence around the whole thing now wow. and um we're we're still trying to improve on our grazing there but yeah that's that's kind of what the landscape looked like and so it was that was one of the things was as when i worked in wildlife management you know i I'd kind of got sucked into like these open spaces and leaving them there for wildlife. And, 
um, what I've really seen working in working going from wildlife management work to to ranching is the biggest impact you can have on the land is what we're doing now and actually we're doing way more for the land than when that land was sitting there idle it was just it was going the wrong way and we've been able to take this land that i was watching just kind of just get overrun by weeds and just bare soil and all that we'd started to turn it back the other way and that was one of the funnest things i've gotten to do and gotten to see and to share with folks is that we need people on this on the land to keep it going the right direction yeah, it's amazing the uh, conservation programs they call it and stuff. You know, conservation reserve program or easements and stuff that believe that taking away all human interaction and livestock management on the land is going to somehow return it to the way that it was before we got here when everything surrounding it is totally different. And so it's just kind of yeah, it, it's it's too bad that so much conservation is is based around that. But I think we're starting to see this big ships start to turn and people are starting to see the benefit of getting livestock back livestock back out on the land and large part of that is producers like you demonstrating it and you know and showing that it's possible and that it can be done well yeah thankfully there was people around that already did it so i could just copy them yeah yeah that helps (laughs) helps. um so i'm curious back to 2014 again like when you you were just getting started you knew you wanted to ranch. Uh, you both had off ranch jobs, like kind of go back to your mindset at that time. And maybe kind of just, what were you thinking about? What were you stressed about? What were the things that you were confident about? Uh, how did, how did you prioritize or, but when you made that decision, had you been intentional about saving to get into that? Or what were the, what were some of the early priorities and d- decisions that you had to make? I guess, yeah, if I could get into your mind at that time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I ended up quitting my job was okay. the first thing. So all in. So yeah, I went all in 2014. I was kind of, I'd gotten frustrated with the, um, with working with the wildlife agency. I just felt like to accomplish things that was better for the land and the people on it. Um, it just, it wasn't going the right direction. And I knew the only way we could do that, it was doing our own thing. Um, we had saved quite a bit of money. We'd, we had capital. That's what we'd, we'd done. And, um, and we knew this was going to take capital mm-hmm. and we'd save for that. And so the, the opportunity was there at that point. Um, economically, I was ready for the change. And um, Wendy supported me in this she's she's not as risk tolerant as i am um so but she obviously must have trusted me she still (laughs) trusted me um and so i was all in the the thing that really helped make it all in too was we had a partner to start with Mm -hmm. and that made it easier that we it seemed like at the time that we were we were sharing the risk um we bought them out quickly thereafter but um that that helped with the process as well and and we didn't i didn't think we were going to get to where we are now as quick as we got there um at that time but um yeah 
we are here now. So I don't yeah. know. Does that answer your question? Yeah, no, it, it definitely helps. I, I think even thinking of myself, I, I'm, I live and work still on my family's farm and the idea of building something, you know, or buying something of my own is still stressful having all the support that I have behind me now with my own family operation. And so it's interesting to hear how people without that family operation existing, you know, equity, you know, building something. I'm always intrigued to figure out what was going on in their mind and what were the things that were they were thinking about and, you know, how and what decisions do they make leading up to that? And so it sounds like you had saved up, you had planned, and you've already mentioned how you realized or you recognized early on that you weren't going to be able to make a go of that uh, this with a commodity business, just selling, you know, finished or steers or something like that, or finished beef at the sales barn. So maybe talk a little bit about the marketing side and how you built that. I think you mentioned selling over 30 on that first year, which is pretty darn impressive. Uh, how did you go about building that side of the business? You know, we, we just, we did farmer's market to begin with. That was the first step of getting our name out there. We did farmer's market every Saturday. So we worked about 10 hours every Saturday for maybe 300 or $500, mm -hmm. um, which is not, 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 um, <laughs> profitable but not paying the what it was anymore. was yeah but what it was was it was huge marketing it was just getting our name out there the other thing we did was we we rode around and um, started talking to restaurants and brought some samples and that and I looked back at those samples and some of them I can't believe anybody went with us but um, <laughs> it was we were selling some pretty lean beef um, <laughs> still do from time to time but yeah. um, anyway so we hit restaurants and grocery stores and that, and, and we just kind of put our names out there and contacted folks and farmer's market was probably our best way to get out there. And, and, you know, like in real estate, they say location, location, location. Well, us being right here next to Missoula, that's a yeah. huge unfair advantage that we have over anybody. Yeah. I mean, um, it, that is everything. Like you can't go do what we did just anywhere because we're right next to this, this community that is really open to conservation values, regenerative ag. I mean, they believe that people are care about what they put in their body. They get them. The, our beef is different than what you can buy at say Walmart and that they get that they're big into the local, 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 local. They, they do that. So, so we really had an unfair advantage on that. So, um, but that farmer's market, we did the farmer's market for the first five years in this business. And that really got our name out there. And um, 2019, we started this honor system store. Um, I stole that idea from the Six Ranch out in Oregon. Mm -hmm. um, they, had, they had a little store out there that I think I saw on Instagram or something. And so I called, I think... I, if I recall correctly, her name's Liza Jane. I called her and asked her how that worked. And she is character. She told me what was going on. And I also talked to her about what they were doing it was pretty cool stuff. But um, anyway, we decided to go with it. Everybody thought we were crazy, going to get robbed <laughs> at this little store. And, um, and they're right. We do. But if you run the cost on what it would touch, or the, what it would cost to put somebody in there to, to man that store. Um, they're going to have to rob us pretty good. But anyway, we, we started that deal. And, um, I mean, we're, 
we're pushing almost $200,000 worth of product that through that little honor system really? store that's open 24 seven people, people come in and out of there every day. And, um, whenever we had the other night, we had, we had to put cameras up cause we were getting some theft and, um, I, there was people in there at one in the morning and I got up, I looked at the, I had alerts that somebody had been in there. And so I looked and I was like, Oh, we got robbed. Nope. They were shopping in there at one in the morning <laughs> and paid. So that is funny. So wow. anyway, man, I think that's actually the first time I've heard of somebody with an honor system having mentioned getting robbed. I've heard so many stories of saying that if anything, they usually come out on top because people don't break change. They'll, they'll throw 20 and they only bought $15 worth or something. They end up ahead <laughs> totally at the end. But, uh, it's still even having lost some and you know, it still worked out. And uh, once you installed the cameras, do you still have theft or? It cut down quite a bit. Really. There was three people that, well, there was two people that were robbing us. Okay. Out of hundreds of people that come in there. Yeah. There was two people that were stealing from us. It's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty insignificant, the individuals. Sure. And I mean, like I said, we, we ran, I mean, we're close to $200,000 worth of product through there last year. And mm -hmm. we maybe got $2,000 worth of theft. We had, yeah. um, we just did the numbers on it this morning. There was, I think a thousand dollars worth of people that are just discrepancies in our logs and that. So, sure. um, and like you said, we have people like we wrote notes about people stealing <laughs> and man, people would leave extra money just the outpouring in the community was just yeah i mean we're we're coming out way ahead yeah i yeah. we take venmo and just yesterday i was going through venmos we we check it every day it's our milk cow um mm -hmm. we call mm -hmm. it you got to go there every day and stock it if not twice a day and um i didn't see this one individual's um Venmo in there. I was just looking at numbers. Well, that's because they left an extra five dollars, you know. So <laughs> sure. Just because they yeah. believe in what we're doing. So yeah. And what is your setup for your uh your 24 hour self-serve store? I mean, what kind of yeah, infrastructure do you have invested into it? It's a little cinder block building. It's about, I don't know, it's a little over 12 by 24. Mm -hmm. Um the floor was falling out of it. It was an old original kind of garage. It's got a garage door on it sure. and then a man door to the left of it. And it's not insulated. Um, the floor was falling in underneath was an old well, like you put a bucket down in, we can really watch our water levels and it's pretty cool. But, um, so what we did is we built that floor back in, we insulated the, the, um, the roof. We had a, we put these stand up, freezers in there and that's all growing we're expanding mm -hmm. in all that aspect but um yeah it's just walk in there's three stand-up glass front freezers on your left that has all of our beef and then there's one on the back wall and that one has usually has our goat and lamb and pork that we have other folks in and then we have a bone and fat freezer and then we have chest freezers for for backup, we're in the process of building the 12 by 24 walk-in now mm. so we can expand it more. And then, you know, mm. we have honey and jerky and we're trying to get somebody to come do produce this year there as well as um, we got a gal that was baking some bread, trying to get her come back. And then um, also we have some folks that raise 
raise eggs that we sell in there. And so we're just trying to expand it as much as we can. Yeah. So. Yeah. And does your, the, the same access to that stuff you have for sale in the glass front freezers, do they also have access to your chest freezers where all your other storages and stuff too, or is that locked separate for protection? Two of them, two of them are locked. One's unlocked because okay. we, that's where all our custom orders we put in. Sure. The two that are locked, um, we have to, for anything like to our restaurants and grocery stores, um, to meet the state requirements on that, we have to keep those locked if we're, sure. we have any of that in there. Plus, it's just security because we have so much um, yeah. product in there. It's just security. If they rob yeah. us on the other stuff, we still have some left. <laughs> yeah. so, but well, they're not that was kind of that. my my question is if you kind of have a limited access so that worst case scenario, they clean you out, there's a very limited amount gone, but that's sounds kind of like what you're doing. And I was looking on the map cause your address is on your website and like, you're not kidding. You're right. You're almost surrounded by Missoula, right? <laughs> like you're right there. Yeah. It's not like over a couple miles out of town, close access. Like people can walk from the city house to your ranch right down the street. Yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Yep. What a cool opportunity. Have you like, engaged your customers and the people of missoula on the land somehow get them out you know on on the ranch or or not so much yeah we do we pre-covid we used to do it quite a bit more i mean like every year we'd bring the university of montana range class out twice a year they'd come out the environmental studies class would come out there's a peas farm which is university based as well they have a garden and farm up the other side of town, they bring all their employees out. Um, and then we would have, you know, we work with hunter groups, we do projects, we'd have them come out and spend a day helping us um, build fence, pick up fence and that. So so we, we try to do that. We try to keep our community involved. We're gonna hopefully get, we're gonna hopefully have like appreciation day coming up, so. Um, and then when we were doing the farmer's market five years there, we were interacting with them every Saturday. So that was, that was really good. And we, and we built that relationship with a lot of people at that time. So, um, but our goal is to connect folks to the land, not just, not just sell beef, but really connect them to what we're doing and what we're trying to be. We're trying to bring the rancher into the city is what right. we're trying to do here and, I mean, we're pretty traditional in the way we we're traditional and not traditional. Like we, you know, we ride and we rope and we handle our cows and our country's the terrain um, makes it that way such that we only handle our cattle, either horse or foot back or horseback or foot. And, um, and, you know, that speaks with the whole Yellowstone thing and all that, that kind of speaks to the people here, but we're, we, we really want to connect. We, we kind of want to bring the way we grew up in rural Western towns, very ag oriented ranching communities. We really wanted to bring that to the Missoula, the city of, and, and I think we've been able to do that and um, to a certain extent, but we want to continue to continue to do that and continue to expand upon that. And, you know, we head and heal um, at our Brandons, which that's a discussion for all kinds of um, different ways, but it's just what we do. And um, we were really cautious about, you know, like, man, we can't let the community see us heading and healing these calves. But we've, we've changed our mindset here because one, we want to be 
we want to be, um, everything we do, we're, we're not afraid to share with our community. We want them to know about it, actually. And so, like, we started inviting folks out to our Head and Heel Brandons. And when they see how we handle the cows and the calves and, and the system and what we do, it's really interesting. Folks that were vegetarians, vegans, stuff like that, they they actually, and they actually, um, it's not a bad thing once they see it and once they yeah. get to be there. And um, our very first Google review ever was five stars and it was from a vegetarian. Really? So, <laughs> so it's, it's been really important for us to, to be part of our community. And that's yeah. what, that's what makes these businesses makes this business is this community. And mm-hmm. so, because we know this community makes it, we have to participate with them. That's awesome. It's, it's, good for your business it's it's uh good just for publicity and stuff but it's just cool that you i mean the location of your farm is good for business and stuff uh your ranch sorry i'm a eastern minnesotan where we say farm and stuff but the location of your ranch is obviously good for business but it provides a opportunity that is almost unmatchable as far as being able to engage people in, in that way so that's that's awesome that you're utilizing that opportunity to share share um yeah so much uh, that's really cool. Um, is there anything else on the marketing side that's worth mentioning about how you built your brand uh, and and your your business on that side? No, the only thing is, is like we didn't advertise a lot. It's all been built built most off of third person marketing, mm-hmm. which is somebody telling somebody else. Like we've never advertised our little store, never okay. advertised it. Wow. And okay. so what it's built is a really strong following, like we'll have people tell us all the time. Like I told so-and-so, but I'm real particular on who I tell about your, your store. And I'm like, tell everybody it's okay. <laughs> but it's really funny because I mean, like there's first person marketing, second person, third person marketing. And that third person is the most powerful because I'm not telling the story. I'm not paying to get that story told. It's somebody that's been there, done it is telling that. And that's been really powerful for us. So, yeah. and that's, and it's taken nine years to get there. And like every week out there, we still have people that show up that doesn't have never heard of us. Okay. So. Okay. Has your, does your wife still work off the ranch? Yes, she does. Okay. Um, she's actually, this is the first year she's going part-time. She's the okay. true rancher. I'm just trying <laughs> to be the rancher, but um, yeah. And it's one of those deals. One of the things that I think, I would do disservice in talking about this is, is, I mean, this is a, to be a first generation rancher and to do it here, it is cost prohibitive. Um, we have to have that capital that we built up and we have to have Wendy's um, job to be able to do that. In 2019, it was a real big turning point for us in this business. And, and, um, that's when we did our little store, but that was the first time we had a full-time employee and we've been able to maintain a full-time employee since then, but we're still working on making this whole thing work. I mean, I'm not going to tell anybody that we got this dialed in and it's working. We've, we've kind of built to the size, um, big enough to where you can either, we've built that perfect size to kind of where it's like, you either have to go smaller or bigger because right where we're at just really isn't that economically sustainable in the, 
where we're at right now because I mean we still have land payments and and all that and so we have to have that um, in town income. Um, mm-hmm. There's been economic benefits to running this business that we never saw, but um, yeah, thankfully Wendy still support me in this deal, but I'm yeah. pushing it yeah. as long. The other thing is is I like to share with people is I've never worked as hard as I have in the past nine years. And I love it and that, but it, it doesn't come without a lot, a lot of work. Um, you have to have some capital. You have to, and you have to have, um, it has to be a lifestyle for you, but we're kind of reaching that point too, where we're ready to change that deal too. So in the next few years, it'll be really interesting to see how we evolve and change this, this yeah. business. So do you have, ideas as to what that evolution and what those changes look like? I do. Like what I'd really like to see this evolve is I'm, I'd like to, I, to really make this local food from the beef end of beef business work is you need some, we need some volume and the way I think that'll work in this. And there's people that are doing it. I don't know. Have you visited with Cole Mannix? I have um, not. He's he's starting Old Salt Company here in Helena, Montana. I think he's kind of got the, I think he's kind of got what it, the picture painted of. Hopefully, he does to to make this work. And I think what it'll take is us working with somebody like him and taking all those market shares, like because we have a market share in Missoula, mm-hmm. taking that market share and combining that with other folks that have a market share across this part of Montana combining that together where we actually have have enough volume to make it work at a level to where it does work and you're not killing yourself um, and you have an in-town job and all that. Um, I think that's that may be an, may be a way to go in the future. Um, Cole's super, super smart. And, um, yeah, I hope he pulls this off and I think he will. So I think that that's one way for us to go. Another way for us to go is just to back completely down and make it smaller for us, you know, where we, we just have, we're just running our hundred head of mamas and selling that all. And, um, but we probably wouldn't have an employee if that was the case. And, um, and we, we kind of like to, leave every once in a while so you need somebody to watch it so we got some tough decisions ahead we're working on our mission and vision and and running numbers right now and trying to really figure out i guess we're kind of in a succession Mm -hmm. um moment at our age and where where we're looking to go with this deal and so we don't have the answers we got lots of questions though yeah well you what you're talking about i think uh, kind of aligns, not aligns. I don't know. I, I feel it. <laughs> it's uh, the real issues. Like I mentioned, my wife and I, we have our marketing business and stuff too, and our farm. And we're at this weird scale kind of where you're trying to balance, you know, get much smaller. And well, we're kind of at this weird size where it, it's almost too work, too much work for the people we have. And you get much, uh, but not enough money. Uh, I don't know. It's just a weird kind of a combo. And we could use some growth to maybe get the help to get it to where we have a little better lifestyle, the cash flow we need, or we need to back down on the workload and and try and, yeah, I don't know. I'm not explaining it very well, but some of the issues that you've kind of alluded to, they 
they hit home, I guess. And as the as far as the marketing enterprise, I'll have to get the contact information of that person you're talking about, or at least look up their website, because it sounds pretty neat. And it's something that I've thought about, too, is we have so many of these farmers out each building their own independent brand and burning a lot of resources to try and brand a product that the neighbor is doing the same thing. And we're all kind of trying to do the same thing, but separately. Uh, and it's, you know, it's uh, it'd be interesting if we could somehow align and work together and share market share and, and then share infrastructure to service that market share in a more efficient way than everybody off doing their own thing. But maybe that's not at all what you were saying, but I guess that's what I heard. So I think it is what I was saying. I, I mean, you get into this, this lifestyle because you, your love for the land or the animals or all that, and you end up selling beef, which, um, I believe I'm good at. Mm -hmm. I didn't know I was good at it, but I, I guess <laughs> I've become good at it. And, um, and it's, it's really fun to see that end product, but the beef business, it's, it's two jobs in one. I mean, there's that beef business. I probably spend 30 hours a week on it at least. Mm -hmm. And I do less of the ranch and, you know, end of things. And, um, Natalie that works, works with us, she does all the ranch and Wendy does the rest when she's on her time, um, off from her day job and, yeah. and, it's just that beef business just kind of, it's just, it's a whole nother beast in itself. And it, um, it's what pays the bills. Yes. But at what cost? And it's usually a time cost. And then when you really get looking at the margins on it, the amount of time you put into it, those margins don't put you that much farther ahead. It buys you somebody to work here, but yeah, you know, you know, it's, that, it's like, get yeah, or go ahead. I was going to say in that person that you buy the, the work here is probably doing the work that you would have liked to do. You, you know, they're out moving the cows and you're spending more time marketing where you'd rather <laughs> the opposite. Yeah. They're, they're running polywire pound posts and outside yeah. listening to metal arcs yeah. and um, I'm inside doing cut sheets. So yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Very true. Very true. Well, I hope that you're able to figure out what that evolution looks like. And when you figure it out, I'll have to have you back on to share with the rest <laughs> of us so, so we can follow suit. Uh, yeah. Well, I hope somebody else has it figured out and I can just jump on the bandwagon with yeah. them. So. Yeah, I um, know. I'm still looking for them. But <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. well, I guess another question that I'm curious about with, especially with uh, kind of first generation ranchers and if this is something you're willing to share is how you view um, investing in land uh, and land ownership. I know uh, for a lot of people getting started, some might try to buy land before they're ready, before they have an operating business and they end up, you know, not being able to make it or, you know, so a lot of people talk about the importance, Greg, Judy, you know, Kit Farrow, a lot of different people talk about the importance of building a, a building a business on lease land and using profit from that business to invest in land. How do you view the land investment enterprise when it comes to your ranch, especially as a first generation rancher? Oh, in this part of the country and I anymore, all parts of the country from the sounds of it, but I mean, you, you can't afford this land to run the amount of cows that you need to, to, um, to make any kind of profit. Mm -hmm. And with that said, I mean, and everybody, you, you kind of, it seems like everybody wants to own some land, have it their own, say 
that's their own. I totally get that. I mean, I love having my own little chunk of land. But a few years ago, I don't remember how many I was told. I don't even remember where it came from that I was told the future of agriculture is going to look like this. One person's going to own the land. One person's going to own the livestock. And one person's going to own the equipment. And the more I get into this, I think that's, that is the, the recipe. If you're not born into the land or if you have unreal amounts of money um, to buy the land, um, if you're not one of those two things in the first generation, the only way you're going to get be able to run livestock is by leasing that land. And, and I think, I think there's some magic there to be honest with you. Like, Really, if somebody wanted a profitable business where I'm living, they need about a thousand head of goats. And um, you could run a thousand head of goats all over this country and they'd pay you to run them. I'm just too proud to run that many goats and I don't want to work that hard anymore. But, and I love cows. You know, I think, I think there is some magic there. And if you get the right person, they could make a killing here. I think I I do think that's the future. Own land. I mean, every every year, the land that we lease, like one of the chunks just sold, and it's a wealthier individual than the last one that just bought it. Kind of a deal, and the the price of that land is just keeps going up up and up. And thankfully, the relationships are there to where we can we can lease it and and work on it. But there will be a day where they probably can't. But there'll be other land there. And I mean, there's some, there's some risk associated with lease land, but it's all built on which life is. It's all, in my opinion, it's all built on trust and relationships. And you can't just go leasing land from somebody you don't know or don't trust. You got to build those relationships. And I was fortunate enough to do that before we started this. And so like our big 3,500 acre lease, it's a seven year lease. And granted, it could go away tomorrow for all kinds of reasons. But um, that relationship, like I'm I'm taking a day off either Thursday or Friday to go ski with the owner. Um, I told my wife last night I would rather run numbers than ski, which kind of sounds backwards. But um, <laughs> that's important about that relationship and maintaining that. So I'm going to go spend the day with him skiing. And yeah. I'll love it. Um, and I won't think about what I should be doing. But um so I think, I think leasing's the way of the future, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's not what people want. And especially in your areas. And I, I know when I went to the ranching for profit school, there were a lot of folks from certain areas in Texas and some areas in Montana that are close to these population centers where a lot of people were moving. And there was a lot of anger towards those people, almost like they're taking away our opportunity to, ranch they're taking away our opportunity to be in this business but uh for folks like you if, if you were expected to go out and buy the place at the start it maybe would not have been feasible but it's folks like them that have the land that don't want to operate it themselves that are giving you the opportunity to run a, a ranching business at all so it's a lot i guess mindset maybe yeah our big lease i asked him what his mission vision was for his land and and it aligns directly with ours. I mean, he really wants to share with the community and he loves that the grass and the, the flora um, that he, that is growing on that place of his is feeding the community, you know? Uh -huh. I mean, it, so it gives them, 
it gives them some purpose in one sense too. Totally. If you, yeah. if you got the right relationship and that and going there. And um, the one thing we have learned is I, when I first started this, I leased any chunk of land that was available yeah. and that's not a good way to go about it at all. So. Well, do you mind sharing a little more on to why that was a challenge? Yeah, I would. I mean, you got to be pretty strategic and understand like at least a 40 acre or was it 80 acre chunk in the middle of town and it was irrigated. And I ran, I thought I, I looked at like what kind of production, how many ADAs we'd get off of that um, animal days per acre. And, uh, and by the end of that deal, we got about maybe a 10th of what I predicted and the amount of work I put in for it, plus driving there, I didn't calculate that was, um, it wasn't long distance, but it was hours yeah. at the end of the deal. And we just, we just, and um, the gal, Caroline, that worked for us at the time, I thought she was going to kill me because she hated going there <laughs> <laughs> and stuff. And I mean, it just was one more place to put some cows and deal with cows there. And so, mm-hmm. um I've learned that not every lease is a good one. Yeah. Well, that's good wisdom. Um, Appreciate you sharing that. Uh, Are there any other, you know, high level thoughts, things that we should talk about here before we start to wrap up that I haven't asked you, or maybe another question or way to question this is uh, when you, uh, when I asked you to come on the podcast and you were probably thinking about some of the things I might want to talk about, what are some of those things that I haven't asked you yet? You know, I, I guess I, been busy enough and I've tried to keep a clear mind because I didn't know what, what to anticipate. So, um, really, well, I mean, you know, I, I guess you could go all about genetics and all that. I mean, I, I think of you get when the herd quitter podcast, I definitely think of Pharaoh and um, genetics and that. And so I, I, my mind goes in that direction, but that's probably, there's, that's probably not where we need to go. Well, it's, I, uh, that's a good one. And I apologize. I haven't thought about that. And it was actually something I thought that I wanted to ask because I noticed on your website, you talked a little bit about the type of cow that you, you want to build for. So maybe talk about that. What, what have you, um, looked for as far as genetics? Oh, well, you know, I've drank the Kool-Aid on the whole, on that whole deal. And, um, <laughs> um, well, I've read all, I've read all the books there are to read, I think, but, um, I'm sure I haven't, but, Anyways, I, what we really do is, I mean, the two lines of genetics that we've really followed that work. The cool thing is, is when we first started this business, we were able to source all kinds of different breeds, all kinds of different um, cattle within the breeds. And what we were able to see was we were able to see the beef at the end. Yeah. And um, we were the control because we were finishing them all the same, but they mm-hmm. weren't all created equal as, I mean, you can have the same line of genetics and they're not all created equal in, in that deal. But it was really interesting to see what animals worked um, as we progressed over the nine years. And we, and where we've settled with our own herd was, um, is diamond D genetics and Pharaoh cow company genetics. Those two really have spoke to us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things is, is, and that's, we're finally starting in year eight, we were really starting to see the beef of those following those two, um, two places was starting to show up in our, in our 
our coolers. And it was night and day from where we started with this. Mm-hmm. And we were able to finish those. The biggest thing were those steer, those steer calves. We were able to finish them at 24 months and they were fat little roly poly toads. Whereas before every steer calf that I'd raised was this big, lanky, long legged, yeah. looked like you better saddle horse kind yeah. of a deal. And so, um, those genetics were really, really changed things for us. And the, we were, we were lucky enough to source, um, open heifers from Cody of yeah. Pharaoh, Cody McDaniel yeah. of Pharaoh and Mark Dubu of Diamond Angus. And we were really able to see what those cows could do. Sure. And one of, um, one of Cody's heifers, that's one of the nicest pieces of beef we've ever, ever raised. And so that was a easy for us to, to pick that direction and go there. And so we've went that direction. And last year when Gabe came here, I asked him if he wanted to go look at our cows because we talked about everything that was more important than our cows. And he said, sure. And so we went out and looked at him and he walked through them. And he said, it was one of the biggest compliments that I could, could have got from him was he said, um, he goes, I've been to a lot of grass fed, grass finished places. He goes, but just looking at these cows, these cows um, are grass fed, grass finished animals. And so um, what we had seen and done and with the end product, and I was able to show him the end product as well. Um, it just worked out. Like, granted, we don't have, all I'm doing is following what these guys have been working their tails off for 30 plus years. I'm taking the gifts they're giving us and, and um, yeah, it's, we're pretty fortunate. So. Oh, that's really cool. And and I love, that's a really cool perspective you get to, yeah, see it, follow it all the way to the meat at the, at the end of the, the chain there too. So um, pretty cool to hear that. And I, I, I really do think that genetics have to match your production system and it sounds like these are the right type for what you're trying to do. So I'm glad you shared that. Uh, but we are over an hour here and, and I want to let you, uh, get back to all of your stuff today. I know you've been on, you've had meetings for a while, but I, I have a couple questions for you before we wrap up. Uh, one is, um, where can people find you and more information about what you're doing? Or uh, if you, there's somebody listening from your area that wants to buy some meat, where, where can they find you? Um, they can go to our website at oxbowcattleco.com. We're in, we're in fact building a new website right now to try to catch up with times and the times and, but that pretty much will get us, get them where they need to go if they, they want to find me. So cool. Cool. Awesome. And then the last question and is if you had to pick like two, three or four resources, you mentioned you've read every book out there you probably gotten close. Uh, what would be two, three, or four resources that can be a book or a podcast or a conference that were important to you or that you think is well worth uh, other people checking out? You know, I knew you were going to ask me that just by listening to other podcasts. And yeah. I really struggled with it because, you know, I've read Gabe's, I've read Jim Garish's, I've read Johann Zeitzman's, I've read Alan Savory's, I've read, um, Nicole Masters, Fred Provenza's, all that. I've gone down all those lists. And what I, one of the conclusion I came to was um, it's a culmination of all that knowledge gathering. Mm-hmm. Um, listen to all these podcasts and listen to all these different p- 
people, but really where it started for me, especially the regenerative movement and grazing was my NRCS guy, Travis Lemke. When we first started this, he told me to, because I was overwhelmed. I mean, I'd, I'd read all these books and I just overwhelmed myself with it. And um, he's like, just split your first pasture in half <laughs> and then go from there. So that's yeah. exactly what I did. And we went from splitting one pasture in half to, um, I don't remember how many paddocks we had last year, 200, 300, I don't remember. But wow. um, yeah. so it's all these these books, these resources. I mean, I find these podcasts very helpful to me, just listening to other people's perspectives. And then, you know, we belong to some local groups. There's a bull session. We're fortunate enough to have here in Montana, where once a month, a bunch of producers, like-minded producers get together and then, and talk. And then I also, I'm part of the Pharaoh Cattle Company email deal. I got tons of knowledge and information from it so i don't know if that answers your question just because i there's so many pieces and factors that have played into it so yeah well i'm not sure what i'll put in the resources uh mentioned <laughs> column of my show notes but those listening will at least get uh, a good answer it totally makes sense because yeah i know it's a tough one but it's always interesting to hear what people have to say and you're right on uh it's we're fortunate to have so many different forms of uh, information accessible at the fingertip these days that make learning a whole lot easier than some of the folks that, you know, the gay Browns who had to figure it out on their own in the hard ways. So we're fortunate about that, but, um, I appreciate you sharing so much, uh, today, your story. It's, it's pretty cool. It's inspiring to hear how, you know, you said once, uh, I, I kind of heard you say it, you know, it's taken nine years. Well, you know, another way it could be said is it's only taken nine years to come where you've come. And, and so that's, pretty darn impressive and i really appreciate you sharing it uh well thank you for your time appreciate what you're doing i i get a lot from from the other folks that talk on your deal so good well thank you the herd quitter podcast is brought to you by Farrow cattle company whose mission is to help ranchers put more fun and profit into their business you can get more information on Farrow cattle company at farrowcattle.com And if you enjoy what you've heard on this podcast, be sure to subscribe and check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Herd Quitter Podcast or at herdquitterpodcast.com.